remember thinking I'd not come across anything like that before or seen anything like that before. I did have my hopes pinned on it. I rather um, let myself down a little bit because I pinned a lot of hope on it. You know, there is actually quite a lot of people out there who, for whatever reason, there's some sort of family breakdown or there's a disconnect between them and family and they don't have close relationships with people. Welcome back to Testimony, The Body on CM Beach. If you haven't listened to the first episode of this series yet, it's best to start there. Please be aware some scenes have been dramatised using witness testimony. Oh my God. Clyde, get away from there. Uh, come here. Hello, can you help me, please? Hello, can you help me, please? Uh, do you have a phone? I think my dog's just found a body on the rocks. We've been looking into what happened in the investigations following the body find, but when we turned our attention to today, one of Fiona's fears were confirmed. No one seemed to know where the deceased's remains had been laid to rest. Despite numerous calls and emails to the council, the police and others, no one could say for certain where he'd been buried. It began to look like we were not only dealing with a case of unidentified remains, but also a missing body. More on that later. I was a police officer in Durham Constabulary, for 31 years, four months. That's Neville Dixon. He's a key character in the story. I started filling in the role of coroner's officer at Durham because we were struggling for people to fill the role. It's not a role that a lot of people, in fact, most people don't want to have anything to do with, which I suppose is natural with it being deaf. The cases I tended to get over the years were um, different. They were more involved, complicated, whichever. And anyway, the families wanted me to hang on, so the coroner agreed if I set up that I would keep those cases from Sunderland. Neville left Durham in 2008 to become the civilian's coroner's officer in Sunderland, which he retired from last year but continues to work on a number of cases where he has become close to family members. In those days in Durham, you had to go to every post-mortem, so you basically were working out of the hospital from the mortuary itself. Then, of course, everybody was intrigued when he came in because it was so unusual. I think everybody wanted to be there because he was just a skeleton with his left shoe, sock and some flesh. The rest of them was virtually stripped. My involvement was such that the police needed to know who it was to rule out any suspicious circumstances. So Cliffy Down did a cracking job. Neville's role meant he worked closely with Cliff Down and the other police on the case to stay abreast of their investigation and report back to the coroner with responsibility for the inquest. An inquest will usually take place when a person has been identified, but that was proving problematic in this case. The inquest has four roles. The first one is to who the deceased was, where they died, when they died, and how they came about their death. Somebody, whether it's the coroner's officer or the senior investigating officer or a police officer, whoever, has to go to the inquest and explain to the coroner and satisfy the coroner that everything's been done like no stones being left unturned to find out the identity of this person and how they've died. On this particular case, we only know that he was certified dead on the beach, it's same, because the actual cause of death was unascertained. Here's Fiona Thompson again. She was a reporter for the Sunderland Echo at the time and covered the case closely. 
So the clothes that remained on the body always seemed like a significant clue. We didn't very have very many to go on. They were pretty distinct. I wondered whether they backed up the ideas from the isotope analysis. That suggested that this person had been living in an environment with a restricted diet, so that's a repetitive diet, or he could have been a prisoner or living in some kind of care home. We only had one shoe. We managed to identify from the tongue of the shoe that it was made by a company called Camber. It identified the model of the shoe and it identified when it was made. So we contacted Camber. We got a brand new pair of those same shoes. Cliff reached out to me and some of the other members of the press to get images of the shoes into the local papers and on the local media in case somebody out there recognised them but nobody came forward. The slipper socks that the person was wearing, they were black or navy blue, and on the underside of the sole, there was a footprint, very much like you would see in the sand. And these little footprints were red rubber, bonded to the fabric of the sock, and they appeared all over the sole of the sock. Now, obviously, the first thing we're doing is we're looking for manufacturers of that type of sock to see whether that was again able to pin down geographically where the person had come from. That was something that, you know, as you look at it, you think, why is the person wearing warm socks? Is it down to, this is what was available, perhaps, or this person had poor circulation? We could think of a number of reasons, so let's not theorise why they're wearing them, let's just work on facts. Who wears slipper socks with shoes? unless it's really cold, or, or if that's your only pair of socks. That could only make me think one of a few things. So it was either the only pair of socks he had, or they'd been gifted to him. He was living in a really cold climate, or that was the only clothing he had on him. They were getting nowhere with the clothing. The DNA hadn't produced a match in any of the databases, and the isotope analysis was ongoing, but ultimately would prove not to provide much help in creating a profile of who this person was. Durham were to venture into further new territory and reached out to Professor Caroline Wilkinson, who at the time worked at Dundee University at the Centre for Anatomy and Human Identification. If you've seen the facial reconstruction of King Richard III following the discovery of his remains in a Leicester car park in 2012, then you'd be familiar with her work. So the work that we do is all related to faces and identity. We work with the police to help in forensic investigations in the identification of unidentified remains. And we work within archaeology and history depicting the faces of people from the past. The processes that we use within forensic identification had been around for a while. It became more commonplace to use facial depictions in difficult cases where identification was not possible through the usual channels. I mean, the police are pretty good at identifying bodies, but occasionally there may be a lack of information. And sometimes in those cases, producing a facial depiction can help get names that the police can then use to identify the individual. The technology that we use now wasn't what was used in this particular case because we used a mixture then in 2006 of traditional modelling methods and the digital modelling methods and that dependent on what particular material was available for each case. The practicalities of pursuing these opportunities are complex and not always well known. 
In order to be able to carry out the full facial reconstruction, Professor Wilkinson and her team needed the head to be boxed up by one of the crime scene investigators and physically taken to Dundee for them to work on. There was clearly a lot of expertise. And we're still talking about 2006, which seems such a short time ago and yet was you know, in terms of technology and how things have progressed, this was really at the forefront of a lot of skills and expertise. So there's, it's it pulled together so many different strands. And I think that's what I find interesting about it is it, it brings together, you know, mystery. It was a not a crime inquiry, but involved the police and investigations. It looks at science. It looks at kind of really cutting edge stuff to try and work out who he was, where he's from, even what he ate and, you know, the, the circumstances he might have lived in. And these little clues that come together, you know, build a picture of who he was. In this case, we were approached by the police from Durham. We produced a cast of the skull and used the traditional clay method to reconstruct the face. And then the police were delivered a plaster cast of the facial depiction. Some of the Choices that were made in terms of presentation were based on the available information from the scene. So, for example, we didn't really know the skin colour, eye colour, hair colour, hairstyle of the individual. So the depiction was produced as a head without hair. We painted it in a relatively neutral grey colour that allowed the audience to imagine colour rather than giving them a colour that may not be correct. Cliff and his team were anxiously awaiting this reconstruction, but when a grey head with no hair arrived, their hopes were dashed. Because of the fact that there was no hair on the skull and that there was very little epidermis left, Dr Wilkinson chose not to give it a skin tone and not to give it a hairstyle, understandably, but it wasn't until her report came along with the facial reconstruction that you think, right, okay, I can see why she hasn't given him a hairstyle. I can see why she hasn't given him a skin tone. But I'd seen the skin at the base of the neck and I'd seen the colour of it and I'd seen the dark hairs that were on that piece of skin and I thought, oh, this male's a Caucasian. And indeed, when the forensic reports came in, they put him as a Caucasian. So for me, I don't know whether Dr Caroline Wilson might have changed that skin tone which might have made a, a difference in possibly somebody saying, I can identify that man. I don't know. But disappointing that we didn't get a, a, a facial reconstruction that nailed it, shall we say. As Professor Wilkinson explains, there was good reason for not adding skin tone or hair colour. When a body's found in water, there can be changes that mean that an evaluation of skin colour is difficult. So when, a, when skin becomes waterlogged, it goes very pale. When it's cold, it also goes very pale. So whilst there was an indication that this individual was pale-skinned, Caucasian in the, in the words of the police officer, that can mean a whole range of skin colour. So Caucasian skin colour can go from pale and freckly to olive-skinned. So trying to depict that accurately is somewhat problematic. So that's why we produced this neutral grey colour in, instead of trying to guess which one of those variations might be applicable to this individual. And we might have some indication that somebody is Caucasian, but that actually 
covers quite a wide range. That can be white European, that could be Indian subcontinent, that could be Middle Eastern, and that's a whole range of skin colours, eye colours, hair colours that we, we didn't really want to guess when we didn't know for sure. Here's Peter Lugg's report for BBC Look North following the press briefing. The mystery Durham police are trying to solve began on the beach near East Shore Village in Seaham almost exactly six months ago. A man out walking his dog found the body of a man washed up by the sea. It was too badly decomposed to identify, but a clay moulding based on the skull has produced what police believe is a realistic resemblance to the deceased. The inquiries have been quite exhaustive. Uh, first of all, we've started with DNA testing um, and run comparisons on the National Police database and on the National Missing Persons database. Unfortunately, that hasn't provided any results. We've gone on to check dental records and take dental impressions from the, from the man and again check those against the impressions of numerous missing persons. Clay moulding is a technique used both in anthropology and forensics to give an impression of a dead person based on bone structure. Similar police reconstructions have proved about 60% successful in producing an identification. So I was at the press briefing at Durham Police Headquarters in, uh, on the outskirts of Durham City Centre and it wasn't so much a press conference like you might see on the TV or you might see in a drama, it was more of a round the table chat um, and I remember me and the other reporters and I knew a little bit more about it because it would be one of my pet stories but we all sat around the table and interviewed uh, Detective Inspector Kevin Langan who was very helpful um, and he was Cliff's boss so kind of oversaw the inquiry. We'd never seen anything like this head before, it was really unusual to see. Um, and it did get quite a lot of interest in, in the press and I remember seeing the TV reports afterwards because you like to follow your own stories and other people's media. Um, but I'm not sure how, how much further it went. Um, obviously there was a lot of local interest in it, but, and I think they did get some calls on the back of it, but they just didn't get the tip-offs they were hoping for. There were people who rang in and, and gave us names and we'd either discounted them or we'd eliminated them or it wasn't that person. I wonder if the police had held this sort of briefing today, whether the power of social media, things would be different because social media is international in a way that nothing else is in the same way. Maybe, you know, the message would have been sent wider if it had been on, in, a, in an age of social media. And I would just wonder if, if it happened now, would something ring a bell with somebody abroad where this man might have come from that would help piece together those, those jigsaw puzzle pieces? Durham Constabulary have a press office now who are on the ball in relation to social media, what they post, getting the, the help from the, the local community and, and I'm sure the word is spread far and wide very quickly. Professor Caroline Wilkinson thinks that social media could have made a big difference, particularly in reaching an international audience. I think social media does give benefits to these identification processes because in theory you can reach a wider audience and certainly that's true outside of the UK because when a body is found, even if they're found in Britain, that doesn't mean that they're from Britain. So reaching a wider audience is obviously advantageous. However, I think in 2006, although social media wasn't available in the same way, less people used it. So 
the traditional methods of the television and print and posters and local news probably was reaching as many people in the UK. It's just that they probably didn't have the wider rest of Europe advantage. Two years had gone by since the remains of this unknown man had washed up on the shore in Siam. All the police endeavours to date had not produced a name. In fact, they hadn't even really produced a solid theory. It was time for the inquest. Here's coroner's officer Neville Dixon again. You have to have an end result. Somebody has to go along to the inquest and explain, this is what we've done and I'm sorry, we can't go any further. We are stuck. So in this case, the actual inquest closing was one of open, which it has to be because then if any information does come to light, it's easy to open because it's an open. We don't know how that person died. Yes, we have to finalise it, but that doesn't mean to say it can't be reopened. The death can't be registered, that's concluded. So in this case, the, the death was registered as Mr Unknown in Durham, but that's it, basically. The last throw of the dice was for me was he was going to be buried. I mean, he was going to be buried locally and I was going to turn up just in case somebody thought... I know who it is, I'm just going to turn up and pay me respects. We got to the two-year period. We'd done our lines of inquiry and drawn a blank. And um, at that point, having never previously had an inquiry where we hadn't been able to identify anybody, I learned that we had to go and seek the permission of the local coroner to um, you know, dispose of the body. I could understand why we needed to bury the body and not cremation. So when I got permission from the, the coroner to have the body buried, in some ways I was disappointed because we hadn't identified him. But I wanted to go to his burial because this was a human being and he was going to, to all intents and purposes, have nobody there to see him later rest, which is very sad. But the investigator in me also wanted to be there just in case anybody was hiding in the bushes. <laughs> perhaps making sure that the police had disposed of him and, you know, or even somebody who knew him and, and perhaps didn't want to come forward to the police and that would have been my opportunity to approach him. And yes, there was an officer who was tasked to let me know when that burial was to take place and they forgot. Neither Cliff nor Fiona were aware of the burial taking place. Both would have attended the service had they known. What that meant is they did not know the location of his resting place and no one else seemed to either. Fiona would have to use all her journalistic skills to find a tiny piece of information that would help with this mystery within a mystery. So this was a two-year investigation and it had gone nowhere, but it really sounds to me as if they did everything they possibly could. They even branched out into different scientific areas that they'd never used previously. And I thought Cliff must have a theory about what happened. I tried not to theorise until we got to the two-year period or we got to an impasse. This man's dental health in excess of 10 teeth that were being lost prior to death. Again, 10 lost post-mortem. Dental health, restricted diet, the poor condition of the shoe. The theory was perhaps this had been a homeless person who had perhaps not had the best diet because they were homeless, not had the best oral hygiene because they were homeless, had perhaps slipped into the water. However, that was as far as I was prepared to theorise. I heard lots of wild theories. See him as a port and there's vessels coming in to see him and we've got the time and perhaps had he been a sailor who'd fallen overboard, gone into the water, but there was 
nothing to support that whatsoever. I mean, obviously, one of the things we looked at was burials at sea. You know, that was something else I learned. There's only two places in Great Britain where you can be buried at sea. I don't know if that's changed, but back in the date of the investigation, one is the mouth of the Tyne, the other is the, the port of Liverpool. But the specifications for being buried at sea is such that you're basically encased in concrete and there was no chance that this body was going to be one of those burials at sea. Was he a sailor who'd fallen overboard? Somebody had perhaps gone to a different country to report it, not report it to the authorities in Great Britain, I don't know. He's between 20 and 50. If you look at the forensic anthropologist's uh, report and you look at the pathologist's report, which are separate, and Dr Caroline Wilkinson give a different age, but he's between that range of between 20 to late 50s. For me, he was somebody who'd had not the easiest of life, shall we say. Well, that was what the forensic evidence was telling me and the, the visual images from his shoe and his isotope analysis. The experts we spoke to had their own theories too. Here's DNA expert Dr Stephen Darby from the University of Sunderland, who we met in episode one, and explained the importance of DNA in profiling our missing person. All of the analysis that's happened today, the facial reconstruction and the bone analysis, tooth analysis, DNA analysis, it's not really revealed anything that will give answers for this. And unless we have somebody come and look for this person from a, from a DNA perspective, then that will just remain a profile on a database. I think a lot of this comes down to personal um, circumstance and it may seem alien to you and I who come from, you know, um, we're embedded in communities with families and, you know, we have relatives and friends who we communicate with recently. But some people, you know, live a lonesome, solitary life, you know, uh, for whatever reasons, or they could have separated or, you know, uh, uh, developed drug habits or whatever and just drift off into obscurity. You know, the homeless people, you know, who would look for homeless people, what relatives would they have, and lots of lots of reasons, you know, and, and personal circumstance. And unfortunately, you know, this is just unfortunate in nature that without a reference, DNA wouldn't help us in, in this instance. The more time that passes, the less likely this has become. And there may be nobody out there who's looking. And that's the sad part about this entire story, that it could be that everything's been done correctly. DNA, even if we knew exactly where the person was from, there may just be no family and we just don't know that. When I went onto the missing persons website, I was really quite taken aback. There's some really chilling CCTV pictures of people from the past, the last time that they were ever seen alive. Um, but also pictures of body parts, tattoos, and they've got possessions that belong to people that were found with bodies. There's artist impressions. It's quite a disturbing catalogue of people that have been forgotten about by the world it would seem. Here's Louise Newell, who we also met in episode one. She's the operational manager for the UK Missing Persons Unit, which is part of the National Crime Agency. On our public facing website, we have just under 700 cases of unidentified remains. We provide really quite limited details, just enough to potentially enable identification. So description, identifying markers, uh, property they might be found with. We share that and a link to sort of contact us if someone believes they might know who the person is. Some families might not report somebody as missing for many, many years if their behaviour is completely normal. So cases could sit on there for a long time before we're then able to make a match. 
you know, there is actually quite a lot of people out there who, for whatever reason, there's some sort of family breakdown or there's a disconnect between them and family and they don't have close relationships with people. And sadly, when they die, A, we can't identify them and B, family or previous friends or previous partners won't know that they're actually missing because that lack of communication is is standard. It's not unusual. All we knew at the time, he'd been buried in a, in, a, in a pauper's funeral, paid for by the council. And I was just a bit pushy and just repeatedly kept asking the question, like, can you find out where he's buried? Is there anything that, you know, can you find a file? His funeral could not have existed without some kind of admin or document left. him. like, somebody's got to know where he's buried. And the police didn't seem to have any rec- recollection or any record of it, which was really frustrating. But it was all down to a receipt. So Durham County Council, who were really helpful with my inquiries after I kind of pushed and pushed, managed to find a receipt that covered the cost of his burial in a cemetery in Hutton, Hutton Henry Cemetery, which is just on the outskirts of Wingate. And up until that point, we had no idea where he was. And now we, now we do, now we know where he is. It was really helpful if you didn't find that last piece of the story that just brought a little bit of conclusion. The remains were buried in Hutton Henry Cemetery, where Norman Robson was caretaker. Fiona and Cliff went along to visit the grave recently. Now, above his resting place, there stands a makeshift wooden plaque with the simple inscription, Male Unknown. Oh. So you've you've put a little plaque on the top? Yeah, I just, I just put that years ago. And, you know, it's, I mean, different ones put flowers on, you know, like yeah, yeah. come to different graves. Sometimes there's bits of flowers I want to put on. Oh, people do so nice. do other yeah. people come when they're, they're, they're putting down things for their family member I mean, or friends? Sometimes they put flowers on, you know what I mean? Yeah, because there are some flowers on there. Well, that's very well, kind of somebody. If you put an egg on there, just drop, drop odd one down, you know, sort of thing. As if he's not forgotten. No. Uh-uh. I remember walking through amongst all these graves and thinking, well, where, where could he, where could he possibly be? And then we kind of approached the, the, the spot and Norman had described how he'd created this plaque and he'd used a marker to put this man's name or he wrote unknown male because that's what he was listed on and all the documents. And I remember approaching it and it was just, it was quite emotional when you, when the hair stands up on your, on your arm, just thinking, this is where he's been. This is where he's been all this time. If you see the pictures of the grave, it's really quite sad, but it is really lovely that Norman took the time to mark that man's grave. He didn't have to do that. It could have just been there, a plot of a plot of grass, and that would have been it. But to say his name in amongst everybody else's, I think was also quite stark because all of these gravestones with all of these inscriptions and names and details and flowers, you know, people have put a lot of time and, and love into remembering their loved ones. And yet, as a contrast, there's this, just this plaque that says unknown male on it. And I think somebody had left some flowers on it as well. I think there might have been some plastic flowers on it. And even so, just to know that somebody who never knew this man just took the time to give him a little bit of their thought was really quite lovely. And he can be reclaimed if he wants, if they want him to be. You know, that's where he belongs and he's been laid to rest and he still has a presence on this earth. We met up with Norma Robson, the groundskeeper, about what had happened on that day and when he was buried and he... He remembered it, It was, and it was really interesting to hear his take on it. He told me four pallbearers from Speckmans, which is a local funeral director's, and a vicar from uh, far off in Northumberland who volunteered his services, had come down to oversee the ceremony, but nobody else was there. 
just came down here and just I put two bits of board across there and the vicar said blah 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 you know a few minutes and ashes ashes just chuck some ashes in mm -hmm. um, soil in and then they just lowered the coffin down mm. and then that was you know just stood a few minutes and then he just walked away and that was it you know and I just came and filled the grave and when they went nobody else present no 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 no, no there's nobody came and he said well they had a thing in the, the paper a plastic a thing of his head in the northern neck one that for me trying to you know but I think he's been jumping off the boats or something like that you know what I mean because have you had to bury many people that don't have a next of kin is it an unusual job well it is I think it's only I think it's only you know I mean, there's one up there, but they had relatives, you know what I mean? They couldn't afford the funeral, like, but there's no... But this is somebody who yeah, had nobody? No mm. name anything, you know. It's... Yeah. And you put together this sign, I see. So yeah, that's made on yours. I just paint the, put, put black paint on it, you know, because if you put that... Jenny, uh, use a marker pen, you know, when you're first, first buried, till they couldn't get a stone, but I just put that in. Yeah. So did you feel it was quite important that it was marked and it was recognised? Yeah, well, you know, just in case anybody did come, you know, because you don't know what mm -hmm. somebody mm -hmm. might come... Mm -hmm. Come down south of somewhere, you know mm. what I mean? It, Cliff, after all these years, it, does it feel strange to finally know where he is? To see his plot? Um, yeah, it does feel strange. It feels sad in a way that, you know, nothing's been able to be resolved, really. But it's nice that people, obviously, who come to the cemetery take the time to place some flowers there. And the fact that Norman's made the sign identifying them and that in turn has obviously piqued people's interests because they asked Norman you never know where that might lead to the parish clerk kept in touch and I remember her sending you a message to say oh the, it came up in the parish council meeting we had a bit of a chat about it and um, we've decided that if any gravestone goes on it or any kind of memorial goes on it we'll waiver the fee just the gesture is really lovely and it was really nice that they actually talked about it just to know that this project was happening and for him to be remembered in that way and then I got another message a while later to say somebody, I still don't know who, um, has volunteered to pay for a marker stone. Something unassuming, something just to mark where he is, to say this is when he was found, this is where he was found. He remains un unidentified. And just to kind of mark his story in a bit of a clearer way. Maybe someday his family will be able to visit and say that he, he wasn't forgotten about. Fiona and Cliff were relieved to be able to tie up this part of the puzzle. But as to what happened to this person, opinions still vary. Here's Neville, the coroner's officer again. Everybody, I think the conclusion was, even at the time we got the agreement was, he's probably fallen, pushed, whatever, jumped from a passing ship. But where that passing ship was passing, it could have been like in the middle of the North Sea. And it just so happens he's washed up at the sea and he could have washed up anywhere. You just don't know. I think it's very, very sad that we couldn't find out who it was. The amount of sort of man hours or work that was put in by not just my office or when I was there, but what Cliffy did in the police was a lot. And we still don't have the answers. It is very, very frustrating. It's, But that's what, unfortunately, very rarely does that happen. But it's, it's happened. This case is the only case in all my time as a coroner's officer that I've never had to find out who that person was. Unfortunately, it's it's frustrating, but it's it's good in the knowledge that every every stone was un, never went unturned. Every every the place more so with Cliffy in the place, everything was done. Every avenue was looked at. Everything, 
and the report itself is very, 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 very good. The inquiry, the, the whole fan is excellent. It's just when you've put all that work into something and then not to have the, the answers to who that person is. Does anybody else remember that this happened? You know, I, I think I think about it every so often, that, you know, all of this work, work went into to try and identify him. And yet it just, it just lingers. It's just a, it's a, it's a loose thread that doesn't have a conclusion. I frequently go walking along Seam. It's a very nice beach, so I do think about it. I do, you know, look back on my career occasionally. It's one of those things where you think, oh, I wish I'd, um, wish I'd brought that to a conclusion. And I do feel frustrated, I still do, that I wasn't there at the burial because there was a breakdown in communication. I feel that I did it professionally and I feel like I did it thoroughly. We followed every line of inquiry we possibly could. So I was quite confident that we had the skills, that I had a team of detectives who had all the skills. We had a forensic um, the crime scene investigation team. Uh, I was sure we had all the skills to um, bring this to a successful conclusion. I, I always felt we were going to identify him, always. So I always was optimistic. And even when we came to an impasse, you could always think, right, okay, now's the time to maybe string half a dozen facts together and have a little bit of a theory, but not too outlandish, that it's ridiculous and, you know, he waste time and effort. I still hope now that because he's on Interpol's DNA list and he's on our DNA database that, you know, somebody might, I don't know whether, you know, these um, genealogists who do, you know, traces of people through DNA or that somebody might identify him and say, oh, he's our such and such. And we've got his DNA and it'll stay there for however long it takes. I wondered if Cliff had any regrets about this inquiry, despite the fact he put so much into it. I would have loved social media to be available, but that was the times we lived in. Professionally, I think, did I miss something? So that haunts me a little bit. Is there something that was blatantly obvious that we missed? Did we go down the wrong line? I'm sure we didn't hang our hat on any theories, and I'm sure we didn't, but still, it still makes me reflect how did we run that inquiry? Because it's only by reflecting do you learn from your mistakes or, you know, we could have done that better or did we? are you sure we exhausted every line of inquiry on that? Um, did we have enough resources to follow that line of inquiry? Could we have pushed Dr. Mir Orgenstein at Queen's University Belfast to give us a little bit more of a definitive answer? Could we ask Dr. Caroline Wilson to have another go at the facial reconstruction and give him a colour? Um, so all of these things go through your head, but ultimately it came to an end. Well, I learned that forces make mistakes in terms of not gathering DNA and not gathering dental profiles. So it was important that moving on from there that we highlighted that and, and indeed that was identified and now within 72 hours they gather DNA and dental profiling. So for me that's something which I learned. I feel sad for him and his family that nobody was there to pay their respects, lay them to rest. That's the sad part for me. So I've been wondering if this happened today, would it be handled any differently? I asked Stephen Darby, the DNA expert we spoke to. 
Probably not. No, not not currently. Um, you know, DNA profiling is certainly the, the most powerful thing we currently have for identifying people. Paternity testing, forensic analysis. I think it's more multimedia technology that would aid in this. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, podcasts, and so on and so on, where where the information would be disseminated significantly more than it would have been back in 2006, where it may have been a, a small um, article in a local newspaper. Now it would be across the internet, worldwide. Anybody could pick this up. So I think that would be the main difference. And communication is key. And we talk about this with the students saying, you know, communication has changed dramatically in the last 20 years. So I think that would be the difference. I don't think the scientific technology would have changed significantly. I think it still would be the same. I think from a DNA perspective, the DNA profile would be equally as informative in 2006 as it would be now with a complete DNA profile. Professor Caroline Wilkinson, who carried out the facial reconstruction, agreed that promotion was key. Sometimes it can take 20 years um, for a cold case review before someone is finally identified. Sometimes it takes two days. It really depends on the, the range of the promotion of the image, but also um, what other information there might be in the case. It really hits me that so many really intelligent people worked on this case. So we've got scientists, police officers, really experienced experts. We've never known who this man's identity is and it's really hard to understand, but I do know that everybody involved did their very best to try and answer those questions. It's always been there in the back of my mind for the last 16 years. Somebody is missing him. Somebody wants to know if their loved one is ever gonna come home. I really hope that somebody listening to this, perhaps, something in their mind will click and they'll help piece together who this man was, whether it's a social media post that's perhaps shared or a little bit of detail that they look into further or they look back at the press cuttings from the time or there's information that we, we can help them with that just helps spark that little bit of thought that pieces together who this man is. There's no one else to keep this search alive but us. Somebody out there must know who he is. Are you that person? Do you recall a friend or family member who hasn't been seen since before the 13th of May 2006? Did they have a restricted diet? Did they wear the camper brand of shoes and tote slipper socks? Maybe these are not questions for you, but maybe you can help. Please share this podcast and the images we share on social media far and wide. What if this story is the conclusion of another story? Another podcast about a missing man who left home one day and never came back. If you have information which may help in identifying who this person is, please contact Durham Constabulary. Thanks to all our contributors for being so generous with their time and for their continued efforts on supporting this case. Testimony, The Body on CM Beach is a laudable production, researched and co-produced by Fiona Thompson and hosted, co-produced and edited by me, Kelly Greiton.